This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Deb Olin Unferth, author of Barn 8. The destruction of wild animals all over the planet, mass extinction, that there's no stopping it. It's going to happen. And so now our job is to mourn as artists. We'll be back with Deb Olin Unferth in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Deb Olin Unferth. She writes nonfiction, memoir, journalism, and fiction. Her memoir, Revolution, The Year I Fell in Love and Went to Join the War, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her other works include the story collection Minor Robberies and the novels Vacation and Barn 8. She teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. Deb Olin Unferth's novel, Barn 8, tells the story of two women, Janie and Cleveland, who work in Iowa as auditors for the egg industry. Janie first came to Iowa from New York City to meet the father she never knew. He introduces Janie to Cleveland, who Janie's mother once babysat. After Cleveland gets Janie a job, the two plot to steal and release one million chickens from the factory farm that cages them. 
Along the way, they have a variety of accomplices to help them achieve their goal. We began the interview with Deb Olin Unferth sharing her history and relationship with chickens. I never had a chicken or got to know chickens before this particular part of my life that that resulted in me writing this book. I began learning about um, factory farming and um, the way that, that animals are treated. Like, I guess it must have been maybe around 2007, 2008, and I became a vegan at that time. And um, then I just started doing more research and I started finding out more about layer hens, um, hens that lay eggs. And I mean, I grew up in Chicago. It's not like I've spent a lot of time around chickens, um, but I was just really moved by their plight. And I read one article about the cage sizes and just the suffering they go through. And I just suddenly had this image of all of these chickens leaving the barn, leaving this giant barn. And I mean, it sounds a little wacky, but I was very moved by it. And then like the more I thought about it, you know, nobody likes those factory farms. Nobody, no matter we, even, even if you, even if you run a industry farm, you're not wild about the fact that you have to keep all of these animals in this confined space. So just the idea of all of these, of all of these chickens leaving the farm and just kind of spreading out over the earth, it just felt so revelatory. And it just, I just felt this great relief. And then um, I eventually just said, you know, I'm just gonna write it. I'm just gonna write this story and just see where it takes me. And then I really got to know chickens. I mean, that was in like, I started this book in 2011. And then I began serious research. Harper's uh, Magazine said that I could write a long-form investigative piece on the egg industry, and I really wanted to get an assignment like that so that I would have some kind of press credential to walk around with. So I went to an egg conference, and I went to factory, you know, these industry farms, and I taught, interviewed farmers, and I got to know all these undercover investigators, and and I spent a huge amount of time with chickens. Like, I went to different farms that have chickens held in every possible kind of confinement you can imagine from just like a sanctuary where the you know chickens just can run anywhere to these um to battery farms to all different kinds of farms and I just hung out with chickens in backyards where people have chickens and I just spent a huge amount of time with them it just felt like I really got to know them um, but this was year, like this was years of my life that I spent. And I wrote two other books in between. So it wasn't it wasn't like that was the only thing I was doing, but there were years when it was the only thing I was doing. Was there anything about hanging out with the chickens and going to the farms that was maybe the most inspiring thing about the animals or something that you bonded with or found fascinating? There were so many moments of sort of revelation for me. I read a lot of books about the history of chickens and also about chicken intelligence and things like that. And and I just spending time with the chickens and watching them in their own social circles, interacting with each other, just seeing the similarities between the way that they interacted and talked to each other and 
followed each other around and their friendliness with me, like they would just come and just sit next to me or stand on my lap and look in my face and, you know, try to steal my pen. And, and they're so soft and fluffy, you know, it's just kind of just getting to know them as animals was really striking. And then realizing that there's no way I'd ever get to know them. I mean, that there was still so much about them, about their intelligence that I would never be able to know because their minds are actually very different. Like the way that they see is different. How they how they look at the world, like one of their eyes see sees things very, very close up and the other sees things very far away. And so they can see near and far at the same time in a way that we can't. I mean, just things like that. Just there were so many things that I would never be able to understand. And I just thought that was so beautiful and important. And I really wanted to try to represent that on the page. And on the flip side, you know, there's also a lot of other stuff on the page about this industry. Was there one thing that you either wanted to capture or that made you mad or just was devastating for you? Yeah, I mean, it's all really upsetting. You know, these are birds they can fly a little, you know, they flap and they can fly a few feet. They have these huge wings, which is the symbol of freedom as a bird. And the idea of keeping these birds in these tiny cages that are just, it's absurd when you see them. The the absurdity of it is, is pretty devastating. And just when you realize what they go through, I, I found that really hard to take. You know what else I found hard to take now that I'm thinking about it was how we just assume that we own these birds. I mean, the more that I kept thinking about it and investigating it and talking to people about it, that people, they're, The big question was, well, how can we eat them? How can we eat chickens and eat chicken eggs in a way that would make you comfortable, that's sustainable or whatever? And I was like, you know, we don't actually own them. I mean, you can't really own a living being. That's that's just something that we came up with and that we just decided. And, um, you know, but outside our contingent version of reality, there, we don't own them. And so I guess I found that question increasingly exasperating. Like I, I didn't understand like, why aren't people asking the question, oh, maybe we shouldn't be allowed to eat these. I mean, they're not ours, right? They're, they're, they have, they're their own beings. They're their own independent selves that have families and conversations and, you know, But I guess that's just how humans are. You started with this idea. You did a lot of research. And then, you know, you're populating it with characters and storylines. And your main character is really Janie. And she is young and in high school. And she lives in New York with her mother. And she finds out finally the identity of of her father, which she never knew. And she's, she's in New York with her mom And when she finds this out, she goes to Iowa to meet him. And while she's there, her mother dies. And so she ends up being stuck in Iowa with this man who's her father that never maybe wanted her or knew her. And they have a strained relationship and they don't know each other. They're strangers. And she kind of had all this promise and then just like all disintegrated. 
she was the first character that I wrote and she starts the book. I mean, now in retrospect, she feels to me somewhat more like equivalent to the reader because she, she sort of aligns with the reader because she's the only one in the book who isn't an expert in this field and hasn't devoted their entire life to this field. I mean, everyone else in the book, they're, they're farmers, they're activists, they're undercover investigators, they're, you know, people who designed cages, things like that. But Janie is just, she's just like teenager living in New York. She winds up in this situation and she decides to embrace it. And something that I, I found myself really respecting about Janie as the story goes on is that she winds up rejecting the kind of person that she could have been or or you know she doesn't she she no longer feels it as a as a serious loss the way she did in the beginning there's like a certain kind of success and a certain kind of thing that we think of as as progress and as development character development and all these things that are so much a part of our culture and she winds up not being able to get those things. And instead she takes this other route that's like pretty radical and is, it's on so many levels into radical that, you know, it's not just like being a big Bernie supporter. It's not even like being just a vegan. It's not even like being an animal rights activist. It's like being beyond all of those things. It's pretty crazy. And she embraces it and she finds it really you know, in the end, she's really glad that that's the person that she became and those were the choices that she made. And it's just a very different kind of understanding of what it is to become a person, to become oneself and to think of oneself as accomplishing something in the world, you know, and, and I just I just really I liked that about her. It's interesting sometimes how radicalness can be born out of a lack of of planning or intention. So I should say what happens is that Janie and Cleveland undertake this venture to liberate a million chickens from this commercial farm. And obviously that's very illegal and they have to figure like how they get a million chickens out. How do they transport them? Where do the chickens go? So it's a very, very radical act, as you were saying earlier, like beyond. But the way that it sort of came about was that Cleveland was doing her job going to audit the factory and make sure everything was as it should be. And one chicken that is becomes named Bwok escapes. She escapes from a barn and you can't return an escaped chicken. I guess they're killed if you bring them back. And so she took this chicken and brought it home. And it seemed like this one basically act of the chicken set off this course of ideas that led to them deciding that they were going to steal all these chickens and liberate them. And it's just so interesting to me when you do think about some of the things about fate, because maybe Cleveland never would have had this idea if the chicken hadn't appeared. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, it was really hard to write that chick, you know, to write block into the book because I really wanted to get into a chicken's head, but I also didn't want to be cartoonish. So when Cleveland goes and grabs that chicken, I knew I was in trouble. I'm like, oh man, I know I'm going to have to get into this chicken's head and oh, this is going to be bad, but it worked out. I mean, it worked. And then, you know, then I I wound up being able to use 
Block in all kinds of ways throughout the book. You know, Block just has a, um, Block winds up having, being a unique chicken. And Cleveland is such a rule follower. And it was really interesting for me to have Cleveland be such a rule follower. And then somehow this chicken knock her off of her, her, her regular track of rules that she's following and onto a different track of rules that she starts to follow that then she winds up, you know, just riding that train, you know, just right into this, into a fire. I mean, it was um, interesting to see that, to write all of that. Have you ever had an experience like that in your life or even in your writing life, like Cleveland finding the chicken? And what I mean by that is just maybe a small incident that changed the course of your life. Yeah, absolutely. I've got so many times. I mean, you know, the, the obvious one is when I became a vegan because I um, never even thought about it. I ate everything. I didn't, didn't even think about it. And then one time on a, I was downloading podcasts and I was looking for some podcast, some cooking podcasts because I'm not a very good cook. And I downloaded, I accidentally downloaded this podcast that I don't know. I thought it said something about cooking chickens, but it actually said something about free range chickens. It was in the cooking podcast alley section, you know? And, um, and so it turned out to be this whole thing about how chickens are treated. And by the time I finished listening, I was like, well, I guess I can't eat chickens anymore. And then the same podcast had one about um, pigs. So I listened to that one and I'm like, well, I guess I can't eat pigs anymore. And then and then they had one about feathers. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to wear any more down coats. You know, it was just, it was so horrifying. And so, and it was just this accident. And then it became a really big part of my life. And I mean, to tell you the truth, in some ways, it's not as big part of my life anymore because it's been so many years. Um, and now it's just, I just do it naturally. I don't even think about it. But for a long time, it was, it was, um, it, I, I thought a lot about it. So that, that's a really obvious example. Um, but no, I mean, everything is an accident. Everything, like if I hadn't been at that one dinner, you know, I wouldn't have met the man who became my husband. There are moments in your book where you go to future tense. And I'm wondering if you had done that in other novels and, you know, why, why you wanted to do that. You know, I haven't done it in other whole books, but I did do it in a couple of stories, short stories. You know, I did that a lot in this book, partly because I wanted the book to be kind of epic or something. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to, I wanted to go way back into the past to the earliest birds, you know, to the dinosaurs. And I wanted to go far into the future and I, and I wanted it to be not only about chickens, but about climate change and about the earth. I wanted to look at the end of civilization and what happens after civilization and that way show the entire history of the chicken, you know, from, from dinosaur days until long, long after we're gone. I, I just wanted to honor the chicken in that way. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So in addition to Cleveland and Janie, they sort of teamed up with some other people, mainly a man named Dill and Annabelle. And they were on the kind of other side of the chicken industry. They were investigators. They were animal rights folks. So they would maybe go into the factories undercover as workers or aid other people to do that to document what was going wrong. Can you talk a little bit about these two characters? As I was doing my research for Harper's, I got to know all these undercover investigators and they were all so interesting. And, um, you know, I just, I love people who want to do things for things that are bigger than themselves, who want to help the world or change the world or, I mean, I just, I like that, you know, the the rule of writing seems to be, what does your character want? And I always found that a little bit depressing because it usually was something like, um, do they want a better job or do they want this, this person to love them or, and it always felt so selfish. And then, but then when I started thinking about it in a bigger way, like, what do they want for the world? Like, what are their hopes for humanity? Um, I, I started to like it a lot more and I started to feel free to have my characters also um, be that way. And so, yeah, Dylan and Annabelle are pretty radical. And here's something that I learned about activists and about um, animal advocates is that um, they are a very grumpy lot and they, they seem to fight a lot. They kick each other out of each other's clubs they um they're and and so in fact a lot of the people who i interviewed for that article and who i thank in the book and stuff are no longer a part of the animal rights movement because they were taken down one way or another either by me too or by some kind of internal scandal that we don't even you know that might not that, that might just be about philosophy, that might be about animals. So I loved putting characters in there that were so realistic. Like those characters are so realistic, their personalities and the way that they're fighting with everybody all the time. And, you know, I had a, an, an, an animal advocate uh, read the book and she said, these, ca- these animal rights characters are so realistic. That's exactly what they're like. And I was very, I was very happy about that. Um, But, you know, the other thing is that um, their hearts are so broken because even though these people, they're so brave, they'll try anything, they'll do anything, yet they're just losing this war. I mean, they might win some tiny battle, but mostly it's just losing, losing, losing everything. And, And that's really sad. So I love them as tragic figures. I love them as like angry, but people who who we really ought to have a lot of respect for because they have 
they just, they're, they're such idealists and they're so hardworking. I admire those people and I really wanted to get them into the book. So you have a line in there that is, it's interesting, you know, to hear how you were changed by these podcasts and, and the, the efforts that all of these people were making to free these chickens. And you have a line that says, it was already too late. They all knew it. The enemy had clearly won. Yeah, I mean, it's so sad to think about how even if they managed to get all of these chickens and just what a triumph that would be, there were just so many, there's so many other farms like that. In fact, that particular farm is really, really small compared to most industry farms. So it's so sad to think that that even even their biggest triumph that would use all of their resources would actually just be so small. And so I think it's kind of like what I was saying before, that the enemy being commercial farming and climate change and the destruction of nature all over the planet and the destruction of wild animals all over the planet, mass extinction, that there's no stopping it. It's going to happen. And so now our job is to mourn as artists. So I feel like that a lot. I, I sit here and I'm just like, yeah, the enemy has clearly won. Like they've got us. I mean, they might find some way to put machines up in the sky that will take the carbon out of the atmosphere, but it's going to be expensive and they're only going to take out just enough to keep us alive. I don't think they're going to take out enough carbon to put the world back like it was. And those old forests, they're not coming back. And all those beautiful animals, all the diversity, it's its not coming back. All we're going to have are these twisted, overbred chickens and, and cows and, and things that will support humans. That's how I feel. So I just put it on the page and stuck it in the book. Is, is there anything cathartic about writing this story? Because... I'm guessing that you are not going to go out and steal a million chickens, but you could live that out in a book in a way. Absolutely. I mean, that's like, comes back to what we talked about in the beginning, which was this image that kept coming to me of taking all those chickens out. You know, like when you're a kid and you say, why don't we just stop wars? Why don't people just stop fighting? Or if you're in a traffic jam, why don't the people at the front just go faster, you know? Um, it's the same thing about thinking about a commercial farm. You're like, why, why can't we just let them out? It's ridiculous. Same thing if you think about um, mass incarceration. Like, why can't we just let those people out? I guess it's just not that simple. We have to fight a lot for it. But the, the idea that we could just open up the doors and just let them out, it seems so simple. And that image gives me so much pleasure. I mean, I guess I feel like that about, about veganism. Like, why can't we just stop eating this stuff? Like, it's killing the planet. It's killing all these animals. Let's just stop it, everybody. It's actually really easy. I think that the relief that I come from having worked on it for so long to create this world where they just do it, you know, they just say, we're just going to do it. Let's just do it. It felt, yeah, it felt really good to write it. You also had one scene and I'm thinking about what you're saying about these, these most radical people who are also heartbroken at the end of their rope, you know, what path they took to get there that when Janie was 
working in the execution of getting these chickens out. She saw them at least in the transport phase when they were moving them directly into trucks to move them, that they were just going from one cage to another cage and that the reality wasn't as liberating as maybe she thought that sometimes we quest for things, but how they turn out might not be what we imagine. That's the thing. I could set up the conditions to, for that possible dream to happen, but then I couldn't just, I couldn't, I couldn't lie. I couldn't just say, oh, and then they were free and it was so amazing. You know, I, I had to, I had to follow through with what it, what it might've actually been like if they really did it. So I tried to be really, I tried to be really honest about it. And yeah, and I, I watched like 50 hours of undercover footage of undercover investigators in barns doing all kinds of things in layer hen barns and a lot of hours of them moving the birds into cages or out of cages. Um, and yeah, it's pretty devastating to to watch those chickens come out of a cage. You could just imagine the chicken for five seconds coming out of the cage and being like, whoa, there's all this space. I can spread out my wings, you know, and then just be stuffed into another cage. I mean, oh, geez. So I just put all of that onto Janie. My last question about the book was you had a figure in there. I'm, I know that you're using a fact, but it was overwhelming that we eat 75 billion eggs a year in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you know, we um we worldwide we kill 60 billion chickens a year. That includes meat chickens. I mean, it's just a really really high number. Um but the 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 thing about that uh, the thing about that that number about eggs that is pretty interesting is that chickens didn't used to lay so many eggs. It used to be that chickens would lay eggs in the spring, you know? Um, some species of chicken would only lay 30 eggs a year and some would lay more, um, but generally they would lay in the spring and then they would have chicks and they would raise their chicks all summer. And then in the fall, they would molt and then they would rest. And then in the spring, they would, you know, have eggs again. And so that's how we raised, that's how we ate eggs for, a, for most of civilization. And it wasn't until the depression that, um, you know, in the 1930s, when scientists discovered that if you just keep shining light on a hen and making them believe that it's spring, shine enough light that it's making them believe that it's spring, that their body will keep producing eggs. It's like it triggers the pituitary gland to produce an egg. So if you just keep shining that light, that hen is just gonna keep laying those eggs. And so we just started making more and more and more eggs. And then we could, you know, we suddenly we found all kinds of uses for the egg that we never needed before. Um, you know, for eggs used to be a luxury. And now, you know, then we started using them in cakes and in all kinds of sauces and batters and things that we now had never used before. Um, you know, eggs are in power bars. Eggs are, you know, you can't have breakfast if you don't have an egg. 
um, eggs are in all bread. Um, a lot of breads have eggs and, you know, when we didn't used to have eggs in any of those things. So, um, so I, it's, it's crazy. We do not need this many eggs. I mean, I make all kinds of desserts and things never use an egg and they, I would put my carrot cake and my blueberry muffins and things up against anyone's any day. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know why we need, we feel like we need so many eggs. It's something, it's like consumerism. You know, we just, you just need more and more and more of everything, not just eggs, everything. Like we need more plastic. I just need so much plastic junk. So because you're so passionate about this, did you ever worry that you could slip into preachy when you're, you're trying to also, when you, when you're trying to also write a novel with a story? Oh, it worried me a lot. Yeah. I was very worried about that. I mean, I think that it's, in fact, um, my editor kept saying, you know, you could put in a little bit more about how chickens are treated. I mean, because there was nothing in there about how chickens were treated. And he's like, you know, you could put in a little bit, you know, a little, a little is not going to hurt. So I put in like one sentence and he would say, you know, I think we could, you could put in even a little tiny bit more. And cause I, I mean, I'm, I'm a literary writer. I did not want, I did not want to be preachy. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want this to be some kind of an animal rights screed. I just, I wanted it to be a good novel. My ambition is not with this to get people to stop eating eggs. I think my ambition is more just like existential introspection. Think about your life, think about their lives, whatever. Um, so yeah, I worried about that a lot. And I worked very, very hard to make, to make it not be some kind of an animal rights screed. And you're not spelling existential E-G-G. <laughs> oh, my God. All the, the egg puns that I have heard in these years. I love them all. I truly love them all. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Um, sure. The piece that I picked is by Leonora Carrington, who is a writer who lived in Mexico for many years. She's a surrealist painter. And I just love her weird energy. She has so much verve and creativity. Okay, I'll just read it. I'm just I'm gonna read the first page of one story it's called The Debutante. When I was a debutante, I often went to the zoo. I went so often that I knew the animals better than I knew the girls of my own age. Indeed, it was in order to get away from people that I found myself at the zoo every day. The animal I got to know best was a young hyena. She knew me too. She was very intelligent. I taught her French, and she, in return, taught me her language. In this way, we passed many pleasant hours. My mother was arranging a ball in my honor on the 1st of May. During this time, I was in a state of great distress for whole nights. I've always detested balls, especially when they are given in my honor. On the morning of the 1st of May, 1934, very early, I went to visit the hyena. What a bloody nuisance, I said to her. I've got to go to my ball tonight. You're very lucky, she said. I'd love to go. 
I don't know how to dance, but at least I could make small talk. There'll be a great many different things to eat, I told her. I've seen truckloads of food delivered to our house. And you're complaining, replied the hyena, disgusted. Just think of me. I eat once a day, and you can't imagine what a heap of bloody rubbish I'm given. I had an audacious idea, and I almost laughed. All you have to do is go instead of me. We don't resemble each other enough, otherwise I'd gladly go, said the hyena rather sadly. Listen, I said, no one sees too well in the evening light. If you disguise yourself, nobody will notice you in the crowd. Besides, we're practically the same size. You're my only friend. I beg you to do this for me. She thought this over and I knew that she really wanted to accept. Done, she said all of a sudden. Do you want to share why you chose that? Um, sure. I love the fast absurdity with which the animal is presented. There's like, there's like no apologies. It's just this kid-like way that an animal talks, even though it's a very adult story. That um, you know, when you're a kid, the animal just, the animal just talks. So I love that about it. And then I love how the story works like this little engine almost where you're presented with a problem which is she doesn't want to go to the ball and then you have this little adorable dialogue that goes on between them and then at the end of the dialogue it's like done and now we know what the engine is going to be which is the hyena is going to go to the ball in the place of the little girl and um, I just I just find that setup delightful. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. So the piece I picked is from uh, Barn 8. And this is me writing about, I wanted to write about the end of civilization. And I kept writing different pieces, wasn't really sure what I was doing. And I got stuck on this image of fans, electric fans that you plug in. Um, And so I wound up writing this. In fact, the fans will be one of the last things to go. In the coming decades, Earth will continue to heat irregularly at first, in patches. There'll be energy shortages, then crises. Families will spend more on energy than on rent. In the late days, air conditioners will become illegal and anyway too expensive to run. Only the richest 10% will be able to sit and have quiet conversations in cool air. Not that they will do much talking, their faces inches from their screens as they fight with people all over the world. Box fans, tornado fans, tower fans, ceiling fans, all species of fan will evolve and fill homes. A firm firm of architects will design an apartment complex with industrial fans making up the northern walls. Doors will roll down over them like a garage. Around them, the landscape will swirl with storms and waves. The Americas will turn into mostly desert and the islands will sink into the Dead Sea. In the final decades, that sound, a low pulsing powerful hum will take over, rise off the earth, muffle what's left. Then one day, all the fans will fall silent. Do you want to say anything more about that? I liked being able to, um, I've struggled so much with how to represent the end of civilization and Um, when I finally stumbled on being able to reduce it to the takeover of one 
household appliance for me was um it was really fun i thought it was a, i thought it was it was kind of funny and um a little scary where do you write i write um at a kitchen table that's in my small office in my home the kitchen table was taken from a home of a friend of mine who died when i had um i had only been writing for a couple of years and he um he died he was very young and i went to his house to help clear to his apartment in chicago to help clean it out um with some friends and i took home the kitchen table and i've just been writing on it all these years and i've just dragged it all over the country and up and down so many flights of stairs and it's it was he had already had it for so many years and his family had had it for so many years it it's it's pretty broken and twice movers have thrown it in the garbage thinking it was drunk thinking it was junk and i had to get them to um go in and get it out for me what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing i think the thing that i that i that gets me the furthest away from writing is um i teach at a maximum security prison in south texas and uh so i do that i do that prison teaching and it takes me out of my head and out of anything that has to do with my life completely. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I have a couple of friends that I've been trading with for years, or if I'm really feeling insecure, I'll show it to my husband who basically just thinks that anything I write is genius. How have you dealt with rejection? It's changed over the years. I used to have, in the early days, I had what I called a shit list, where any rejection that really hurt my feelings, I would write on that list. And I would write after it something like, I'll show them, like, someday they'll be sorry. I did that for a very long time. But more recently, I think I the rejection doesn't hurt me as much because I haven't had any rejections since it have really hurt. Maybe I can laugh them off better, maybe because I'm so much happier as a person. And what is your favorite word? Henry, which is my dog's name. Well, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. That was very fun. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Deb Olin Unferth author of Barn 8. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Karen Joy Fowler, author of the novel We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. We talked about raising children with chimpanzees as part of a scientific experiment and the human-animal relationship. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 250 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. Some clips from this month's interview that patrons will receive as extras include an extra seven minutes or so with Deb Olin Unferth. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ander Monson, 
Anna Solomon, Anne Napolitano, Lori Gottlieb, and Anne Enright. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.